change the script a little bit, and we're looking at what it is that Jesus enjoyed. What it is that Jesus enjoyed, the other side of the spectrum, as it were. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, another list of things, another example of some things that Jesus enjoyed. Do we, um, do we have the slides for this? Did we have that? Okay, we'll see if we can find those. Um, three things that Jesus enjoyed that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at Jesus enjoyed rest, Jesus enjoyed recreation, and Jesus enjoyed rapport. Jesus enjoyed rest, recreation, and rapport. Think about the things you enjoy the most. Think about your most treasured memories. Think about the, the, the things that, um, well, those picture, uh, those photo book moments that you have from your past those times that just stand out as beautiful memories that you treasure. Chances are they didn't happen in the middle of a hectic day at work. Chances are those memories weren't made with bosses yelling and deadlines looming and pressures upon you. Chances are those memories were made at a slower paced time. Those memories were probably made at a time when things were, well, the activities around you were pleasant. And they were probably made in company with people who, thank you, beautiful, uh, they were probably made in company with people who are very important to you, people who you treasure, whose camaraderie and commonality you find beneficial. If that's true for us, if those are the times that we have good memories, doesn't it stand to reason that those would also be the times that Jesus has good memories? some of Jesus's greatest memories, some of the times that he treasured the most are times that took place just like this, in events and moments just like these. Okay, now that one's mine. It says on, and I had it in the off position, so totally on me. There we go. You know, these images right here look a lot like the images that we often think of with Christ. These are often the pictures that we see of Jesus. And you know, if you, if you really stop for a moment, one of the things that we've been week after week after week trying to confronting a little bit is how the pictures that we have of Jesus really don't match what we know to be true about Jesus or the message that Jesus sought to bring to the world. Jesus all too often looks oddly Midwestern. I mean, most of these guys could be from Iowa. This, this isn't the kind of picture that you normally would think of. And they look sad, and they look miserable, and they look like everything, in the, the weight of the world is hanging on their shoulders. Seriously, this guy right here, this number three in the red sash, I think, I think he was an elder at one of my previous churches. I think this is his Olin Mills picture. And if I remember right, he said to the photographer, I am smiling. I am, I am smiling. Here's my point. Is it any wonder... Is it any wonder that the good news is failing to reach the world when this is the picture that so many people have of the one who brings the good news? While you're smiling, I'll go ahead and tell you this. There's an internet challenge going around that I find fascinating. And here's the smiling part. The fact that I know 
that there is an internet challenge going around. That part in and of itself is worth a laugh. The last internet challenge that I was aware of re uh, required somebody to dump a bucket of cold water on my head. That's how far behind I am. I am on one, one singular social media platform, which I'm told by my kids, Facebook is the only social media platform that my age allows me to be in. And I'm so out of touch that even on Facebook, my, my pages are all about smoking meat in my pellet stove or how to work out without hurting yourself or the best types of shoe inserts. So I have no business in any way, shape, or form with an internet challenge, but there's one that's really got me interested lately, and it's this. Summarize the gospel in one Bible verse. Huh. Summarize the gospel in one Bible verse. Well, let me just say this. When church people say things, sometimes we're not clear to those who are not church people. Gospel may be one of those words that you're thinking, I don't have any idea what that means, and so let me just back up to say this. The word gospel is just an old word that means good news. That's what it means. But just as we talked about this morning, Clark led us through a great discussion about what communion is. In the same way, the gospel is just simply the good news. It's just the good news that we find in the pages of Scripture. It's the good news that God loved us so much that He could not stand the picture, the thought of eternity without us a part of it. And despite the fact that we continue to let Him down and we disappoint Him and we frustrate Him and we rebel against Him, despite all of our flaws and all of our faults, He continues to relentlessly pursue us. He continues to want to have a relationship with us. In fact, his love for us was so great that he sent his own son to come down and to live like us, to put on flesh, to experience life so that he would know firsthand what it's like to be a human. He could sympathize. He could understand everything that we've, we go through and everything that we experience. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to know firsthand what it was like to feel happiness and joy the way we do and frustration and sadness and disappointment, to know what it's like as he experienced everything that we did. He knows what it's like to fall down and skin your knee. He knows what it's like to have your mom throw you a birthday party surprise stash and for your fourth Those last two aren't really in Scripture, but I, I'm sure they happen. Those kind of things happen. The good news is that it doesn't end there. It's not simply enough that Jesus came down to experience life so that he could relate to us. But Jesus came to answer the biggest question, the biggest problem, the biggest obstacle that we have as humans. Sin and its close counterpart, death. You see, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to take on our sins to pay a price in his own life for our sins, a price that we can't pay, a, a price that we can't possibly pay. And yet God in his infinite grace and Jesus in his amazing love came down to, to allow himself to be hung on a cross so that we could find forgiveness and cleansing, that we could find acceptance, that we could be made a part of God's family and we could live with him forever. And my friends, that's good news. That is good news. That's the gospel. And that's what we're here to share. But the sad reality is that these don't look like a person who's coming to bring that good news. So back to the challenge. Here it was. How do you present the gospel in one verse? Let me give you a couple that were on this challenge that people were posting. 
I like this one a lot. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a good one. That's a good one. Martin Luther pitched in. I know it's funny, right? Martin Luther, that Martin Luther, the nailing the, the problems on the board, on the, uh, the church bulletin board way back. Yeah, he ended up in an internet challenge, which is pretty cool. But he suggests this. Actually, he didn't do it on the internet. He did it in a book a long time ago, but it got its way into this internet challenge. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's good. Let me rattle off a few others real quick. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that's Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We could go on and on, but these are glorious, these are grand. This is good news. My favorite, though, is this one, John 3.16, probably the best-known passage in all the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he sent his own son, that he gave his own son, some translations will say. And he did so, so that whoever believes in him would not have to perish, would not have to die, but instead could find eternal life. That's the beauty of this passage. That's the good news that we came to share. And the one who brought the good news deserves a better public relations fiasco than we've subjected him to. So at the heart of our sermon series, we're trying to get an accurate picture of Jesus, fully man, fully God, and to proclaim the good news, the good news that he came to share with our world. This morning, let's take a second and define our terms. Three things I told you that we're going to be looking at today in terms of what Jesus enjoyed. The first is that Jesus enjoyed rest. Rest is defined as an intentional break from labor, a choice to cease busyness and relax. A couple of words there that are important. It's an intentional choice. It's something that we do because we value it, we treasure it, we desire it. Rest is something that our heart wants, our soul desires, and our body needs. And we make the conscious choice to do it. The second thing Jesus enjoyed, Jesus enjoyed recreation. Jesus enjoyed recreation. This one may be a little hard for us to get our mind around, but he really did enjoy this. And activities specifically engaged because it offers rejuvenation and pleasure. Notice this, it's not an activity out of duty. It's not an activity out of work. It's not a responsibility. It's something that you engage in because it is truly enjoyable. It is for fun. The last one, rapport. Now, I will admit, rapport is not a word that we use very commonly. It's not something that we say all the time. But rapport is a great word. And besides, it started with the letter R, and I was on a roll with my alliteration, so sue me. The word here means um, camaraderie. It is a unique enjoyment that we feel when we experience the company of select friends. This is the group of people that bring us life. These are the people that when we're around them, we, we leave feeling lighter. These are the people that we leave them and we felt like we were seen. We felt like we were heard. We felt like these people get me. I enjoy their company. I love to be with them. It feeds my soul 
when we're together. Jesus enjoyed all three of these. Jesus enjoyed these, and we know this because Scripture shows us. Let me show you one more slide on this. I want you to see how these work together because these really interact with each other in a beautiful way. First of all, you have this idea of rest here, and this idea of rest is providing us renewal and rejuvenation. It's recuperation. It's, it's refreshing the spirit within us. Rest is important. Rest is essential. As we're going to talk more about as we get into this lesson and as, as Joe mentioned in his prayer, rest and work. Work, rest and work. This is a natural cycle for which we were made. And it's a beautiful cycle. And to abuse either one of those or to ignore either one of those is to miss out on a great blessing that God has in store for us. But rest is important. When rest is expressed in activity, it's recreation. When rest is expressed in activity, it's recreation. And when rest is expressed in people, it's rapport. So we can find rest in the things that we do. We can find rest in the people we're with. We can also find rest in both at the same time. A lot of times what we'll find is that we're doing something with people that refresh us. And both of those are at work. That's important for us to understand. Because this is how it works for me and you. And guess what? This is how it worked for Jesus. Because he was just like us. And we need not ever forget that. Let's look at the first of our three points this morning, and that is Jesus enjoyed rest. I love this saying, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus. That's a beautiful saying. You can't really see it very well on there, but that's actually imprinted on a pillow, which I think would be a very fitting gift to share with somebody. And that comes to us directly from Mark chapter 4. Speaking of the Gospel of Mark, be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's on page 841. 841 is where you'll find that. And incidentally, if you don't have a Bible and you are now opening one of our Bibles, congratulations, that just became your Bible. Take that home with you. We'd love for you to have that. <clears throat> so as you're turning to Mark chapter 6, let me cap off, kind of recap, give you a picture of where we are in this particular chapter. As this chapter opens, Jesus goes back to his hometown. His hometown is Nazareth. And you think that if anybody is going to accept him, if any place is going to open their arms, if anywhere is going to welcome him and his message and his good news, his gospel, it's going to be his hometown, right? But you're wrong. This, they reject him soundly. They, they, um, they, they completely uh, reject him cold and break his heart. How sad it must be to go back to your own hometown and not be accepted there. And so... Leaving there, as the chapter goes on, he gets word about his good friend, his co-worker, and his first cousin, whose name is John. We call him John the Baptist, because there's a lot of Johns in the Bible, but John the Baptist, you'll remember, is Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist was foretold to be the one who would make the path straight, make the path ready. He was sent ahead of Christ to prepare people for Jesus' coming. He was his cousin, he was his good friend, he was his co-worker. And in the course of his ministry, John ruffled a lot of feathers. In fact, one of the people who he ruffled was the king of that area. And the king got so angry at John that he had him executed, cut his head off, put it on a silver platter and paraded it around like some grotesque trophy. So this is Jesus' day. Rejected in his hometown... His cousin and good friend is executed. 
This, this is, this is Jesus' day. What was Jesus' answer for hard times? It would be wise for us to take a page out of his book. When we face hard times, when we face troubles and challenging days, we ought to understand what Jesus understood. And what Jesus understood was he needed rest. He needed rest. All too often our bodies tell us it's tire, they're tired and we don't listen. All too often our spirits tell us we're tired and we don't listen. All too often we're not responsive to the human needs that we have. And when life is hard, we need rest. And Jesus knew he needed rest. And Jesus made a concerted, intentional choice to find rest. Listen, verse 31. Skip down with me to verse 31. Then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles did not even have time to eat. When Jesus had met his limit, he knew what he needed. He needed time to rest, and he needed a good meal. He wasn't afraid to face the realities of humanity. He wasn't afraid to face the realities of his, his own human needs. He knew, I need to rest. I need to get away. I need to eat a meal. And we would be wise to recognize how important that is. And this is far from the only time that Jesus did this. Jesus, numerous times in, in his earthly ministry, was found getting away by himself, going away, finding time to rest, finding time to recuperate, finding time to refresh. In Mark chapter 4, in Luke 23, it talks about Jesus taking naps. There's an old story that I think Jesus would appreciate. It's a story told about Teddy Roosevelt, the president of the United States, but this was long before he was president. At this time, he was just, as the story goes, a young, hard-driving young man. And he was on safari in Africa. And according to this story, he had hired some native guides to, to help him traverse the uh, rainforest out to where he could find good hunting ground. But Teddy Roosevelt, notoriously hard-driving, was constantly frustrated at the pace of these guides. They kept stopping and taking breaks. They would lay down their packs and they would stretch out on the ground and they would lean up on a tree and drop the hat over their face and they would just rest. And finally, after a few days of this, Teddy could have no more and he stood up and he yelled, what are you doing? We've got to get going. And the senior guide, laying against a tree with his hat over his eyes, didn't even look up just simply said, we will, sir, as soon as our souls have had time to catch up to us. Isn't that a cool way to put it? Rest is allowing your soul to catch up with you, allowing your spirit to catch up with your pace. And sometimes to do that, we've got to stop. And we've got to face the realities of our human needs. We've got to face the realities of the fact that sometimes we travel too fast for our spirit to stay up with us. And rest has always been part of God's plan. In the beginning, and when I say in the beginning, I mean like the beginning, like Genesis, like creation of the world stuff. In the beginning, the AMP, uh, which is a translation of the Bible, it, it renders the fourth day of creation like this. It's very poetic, but listen carefully because it's beautiful. It says, let there be light bearers, light bearers, that's poetic, sun, moon, and stars. 
Let there be light bearers in the expanse of heaven to separate the day and the night and let them be useful signs of God's provident care for the marking of seasons, days, and years. Even before humanity was created, God was already planning the pattern of work and rest. Work and rest. Work and rest. We weren't even here yet. And God already says, I know what I need. I need a rhythm. And I'm going to create the sun and the stars and the moon so that there can be a rhythm. Jesus said famously when he was on the earth, work while it is day because the night is coming when you don't work. He said, what was he saying? There's a, there's a time for work. There's a time for rest. The, the, great, the great teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about a time for everything. There's a time to work, and there's a time to rest. And this was already part of God's plan. God's plan was always for there to be work for man to do. And God's plan was always for there is time to rest and recuperate. Interesting little side note. We won't go too far down this. Work was here before the fall. Sometimes we get the idea that work is like the result of sin. You know, that if we hadn't had sin in the world, we wouldn't work. Man was given job before man ever fell. Man was given work. Work is supposed to be a redeeming quality. Work is supposed to be satisfying and encouraging. And here's something, I'll just give you a little, I said I'm not going to go too far, and here I am going too far. But this is, this is neat. This is exciting for me. I believe wholeheartedly, Jeff's opinion, you can come yell at me later if you want. Um, I believe wholeheartedly when we have eternity with God, we're going to work. But I think it's going to be work that's going to be pure and perfect. It's going, to be, it's going to be stripped clean of all of its pressures and all of its dissatisfaction. And instead, it's going to be satisfying. It's going to be gratifying. It's going to be the ability to put talents into use in a glorious way. Work is good if done properly. Rest is good if done properly. And it was always part of God's plan. It was always part of God's plan. Even God himself on the seventh day rested. Now, he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested to give us a pattern. He rested to give us an example. And if God can rest for one day out of seven, who are we to say that we can't? And not only that, it was so important in God creating this work-rest, work-rest pattern that when he built a relationship with his people, one of the first things he did was give them 10 rules to follow. And one of those 10 rules was take time to rest. He called it the Sabbath. But he said, one day a week, I want you to just shut it down. I want you to just be with your family. I want you to just be with me. I want you to just relax because it's that important. From the very beginning, rest has been something that God has put into the very fabric of our very creation. And our relationship with him has always valued rest. Psalm 127, the psalmist said, it is useless for you to work hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working and working. God gives rest to his loved ones. Christ lived a life of service and sacrifice, and yet he valued rest. I'll just say this one last thing. I've got to get off this point. Some of you right now, if I were to pull you aside privately, you'd say, yes, I know that's important, but you know what? I can handle it. I can. I, I, sometimes I work too hard, sometimes I go too fast, I know, but, but I can handle it. Let me say to you a couple things. First of all, no, you can't. Stop fooling yourself. You're, you're fooling yourself and it's hurting you. No, you can't. Second of all, what about the message you're sending to those around you? 
What about the message your children are picking up from you? What about the message you're sending to your coworkers about what is required of them? What about the message you're sending to your spouse about how valuable they are to you compared to whatever it is that you're pouring your work in on? You know, when we prioritize our well-being, when we prioritize our mental health, when we prioritize proper pacing, when we say no to the extra things, the extra activities, the extra good things, the extra shifts, when we enforce our, our, our healthy habits, when, when sleep and rest and family time become valuable to us, we teach a valuable lesson to our children and to our coworkers and to our spouses and to the world around us. You see, God was omnipotent. God didn't need to rest. We're not God, and we do. And while Jesus was here, he did too. Jesus took naps. I think we should be more like Jesus. Secondly, Jesus enjoyed recreation. <clears throat> Jesus enjoyed recreation. <clears throat> what do you like to do for recreation? Everybody's got things they enjoy. Everybody has things that they like to do for recreation. Those things that give you a, a rejuvenating uh, quality. It, it just, it lights your spirit. That, that very word, recreation, recreation, to be made new again, to be made fresh again. There's a beautiful quality to this idea. What really refreshes you? Think about that activity, and now let me ask my next question. Have you ever stopped to think of that activity as a gift from God? Have you ever stopped to think of that activity as a gift given to you by God? It, well, here's what I mean. Here's why that's, that I, I believe that's really true. I, I'm not just merely throwing out hyperbole. I'm, I'm telling you something that I believe in my heart to be true. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, wrote a book that's in our Bibles, James. And he talks about every good and perfect gift comes down from God. If you have a gift in your life that is beneficial, meaningful, rejuvenating, refreshing, it's bringing you happiness and joy, that's a gift God gave you. That's a gift you should be grateful for. That's something that is specifically for you. I want to read this little quote to you that I found this week. I was doing some reading on recreation and Christianity. I'll just quote it. Recreation is a kindness from the Lord, a gift that renews us and allows us to go on glorifying him through our work while reminding us of our own limitations. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. When we relax from our regular labor and our toil and sink into recreation, we remember that Christ's burden is light and he provides true freedom and grace from endless striving. Jesus enjoyed recreation. Can I show you an example real quickly? Uh, on Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 5, page 860, 860 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 5, an example of a time that Jesus demonstrates a love for recreation, a value on recreation. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, page 860. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon the owner to push out into the water. So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowd from there. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let your nets down and catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. 
But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish, and both were on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he, he fell to his knees before Jesus, and he said, Lord, leave me. I'm a sinful man. He was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, and the others were with him. His partners, James and John, were also amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything they had and followed Jesus. There are so many cool things in this story. So many cool things. I'm just going to tell, make one point. I could make ten. I'll just make one. Verse 4. Jesus initiated the fishing trip. Did you see it? Jesus is the one that said, hey, let's go fishing. You know what? Jesus didn't need the fish. Jesus wanted to go fishing. Jesus wanted to feel the cool breeze in his face. Jesus wanted to feel the waves against the gunwales of the boat. Jesus wanted to feel the strain of the nets. Jesus wanted to enjoy the activity. How cool is it that Jesus was a boat guy? Jesus, time and time again through scriptures, Jesus is found out on the waters for recreation. It's what he did for fun. The very one who was the co-creator of every stream and river and ocean and lake is the same one who came down and experienced it just like we do. And he enjoyed it. And it was a gift from God. And he appreciated the possibility there. I'm not a boat guy. I can't really appreciate the boat part. But I can appreciate the fishing part. And Jesus and I can connect very much on that one. I can relate to a Jesus like this. Let's close by talking about rapport. Rapport. Finally, I know some of you are going, finally, yes. I'm going to tread on some dangerous turf for just a moment, and I invite you to come along with me very trepidatiously on this journey, okay? I don't think we have a good picture of rapport in our modern world. I don't think we have a good picture of rapport in our modern church. I want you to think for a second about the last movie scene, television commercial, television episode that you saw men really connecting with men, women really connecting with women. And I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a, a, a suggestion, a, a, an inference, a thought about what was included. Because as I think about those scenes, I think coffee, beer, or wine. I think coffee, beer, or wine. And here's what I mean. Coffee. I think about, and I was never a fan of this show, but I think about the show Friends. And I think about the way they plop down on those couches in Central Perk. And I think about the camaraderie they enjoyed and the way they shared life, the way they interacted with each other, the way they encouraged each other, the way they saw each other, the way they gathered with each other. And it was over coffee. And so to me, I think of camaraderie, rapport, I think of coffee. I think secondly of beer. Because from the time I was very young, the commercials I would see on television showed men in a light that I never saw men personally. I saw them around campfires. I saw them fishing along a shore. I saw them sitting in a, in a bar with a game going behind them. And I saw camaraderie. I saw connection. I saw these men put a hand on a shoulder. I saw them engage with each other and look deep in each other's eyes and really feel for each other and connect. And I grew up going, I never see that. But I see it on beer commercials. Beer must be the thing that brings together people. Thirdly, and this is sexist, I know, but I'm just going to say it. Wine. Because when I think of the movies, the television shows, the commercials, that I see women really connecting with women, 
really sharing life, really engaging, really encouraging one another. I see them clinking long stem glasses of red or white along some little patio cafe on a Parisian street somewhere. That's the picture I have in my mind. And you know what? We live in a world, this is so crazy, that the church can't seem to compete with Folgers and natural light when it comes to really building connection and rapport with its people. If there is any place on earth that people should feel connected, that people should feel accepted, that people should feel seen, that people should know what it means to be rejuvenated by the company that you keep, why is it not the church? What have we done wrong? What are we missing? That we really, we cannot, Starbucks, and the local bar do a better job. Now, let me be clear. This is, not a, this is not about caffeine or alcohol. You want to talk to me about those, I'll talk to you about those anytime at, at whatever length you want. But I'm talking about connection and where we see it in the world today and where we don't. You know where I saw it in the life of Jesus? I saw it with his friends. I saw rapport. I see deep level connection. I'll give you one real quick story and then we'll get out of here. Jesus enjoyed breakfast with his fellows. This story that we have here, and I'll just summarize it. I was going to make you turn to it, but I'll just summarize it. Um, Jesus has just recently been crucified. Jesus has been resurrected. It's found in John chapter 21. And he has come back from the grave, and he is appearing to his friends. They're out fishing all night, as they typically did. Jesus is waiting for them on the shore. They're rolling, rowing their boats in. They see him. They're excited to see him. He sees them. He's excited to see them. They're looking forward to being together. They can't wait for the boats to in fact, Peter is so excited about him, he can't even wait for the boat to get there. He jumps out of the boat and swims for it. He wants to get there so fast. He gets to there, he gets to the shore. Jesus has a little campfire going. He's cooking up some fish. He says, hey, bring me some fish. Let's cook up some breakfast. We're going to have this meal together. And he knows they're exhausted. They're tired. They've been fishing all night long. They're hungry. Little side note, do you know I never could find a single time in Scripture that anybody went fishing without Jesus and caught fish? It just goes to show that a lot of my fishing trips, apparently I'm forgetting to invite Jesus along because I'm not finding any, any fish most of my... I, I say I go fishing, I don't go catching. And that's exactly what we find here. He cooks them a meal because they were hungry. He was excited to spend time with them. He wanted to hear about their victories and their defeats. He wanted to know about their, their highs and their lows. He wanted to in, 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 connect with them in their life in the deep and meaningful ways. So he prepares a meal and he waits for them with anticipation and excitement. And I just ask you, how often is that the anticipation and excitement you have for other people in your life? To have those people that rejuvenate you and refresh you and bring you happiness and bring your soul energy. Jesus valued rapport. And I think we should too. Jesus enjoyed rest. Jesus enjoyed recreation. Jesus enjoyed rapport. I don't know what this lesson has for you, where you find yourself in it, what area you might need to ask God to help you work on. Mine's obvious to me. I know where I need to work. Maybe you do too. But I'll just close by saying this. It's interesting that he, he has this story the concluding story in our lesson today is a story around a feast. A feast. 
not a gala, not a black tie affair, not get dressed up and fancy, but sit down on the sand and have some fish with somebody who you love deeply. Comfortable, casual, inviting. You see, that image of a banquet, a feast, a meal is something God and Jesus use over and over through Scripture to talk about the relationship God wants with His people. It's also the image that's used a lot of times to talk about that last day, that day we look forward to when Jesus is going to return, when Jesus is going to come back and He's going to collect His own. It says it's going to be a big banquet. It's going to be a wedding feast. It's going to be a time where Jesus opens up the banqueting doors of heaven and He says, come and join me. I've been waiting all of eternity for you. I've been putting out this meal for you. I've been anticipating your arrival here. I want you to come in because you're part of my family. And I just got to say, to those of us who are Christians, we live every day with an anticipation of that day and an excitement of it. The same kind of excitement that made Peter jump out of the boat and go swimming for the shore because we know what's waiting for us. This morning, though, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never let him forgive you for your sins with his blood on the cross, if you've never been buried with him in the waters of baptism, we want to let you know there is a feast that's awaiting you. And he can't wait to write your name on the invitation. If we can help you with that or anything else this morning, please know our leaders stand right here in the back of this room and we'd love to meet with you during this last song and share any way we can. Will you stand with us as we close with song?